invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the letter of 1 Timothy, where we'll read chapter 1, its entirety. And as you're turning there, I'll just mention that the three uh, families that, and ministries that I had just mentioned, we have cards for each of them in the back. And so if you do not have a card to put a name to a face and you want to just commit them as, intentionally to prayer, uh, we invite you to take those with you. And as they're all taken, we'll put out more uh, in this time. But as a church family, we're going through every letter in the New Testament, looking at how it begins and how it ends. And so now we are in 1 Timothy, uh, and our encouragement has been, we hope that as we look at the beginning and the end, that for you it's also an invitation just to read it in its entirety, uh, to fill in the middle, uh, and, uh, as you would any other letter that you might receive uh, that would come to you. You'd, you'd want to understand it well, uh, have the whole thing in your mind, and see how it unpacks and how the stories develop. Uh, even though we're being brief, uh, we hope it's just an encouragement to you in your daily Bible reading. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, with whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. Here, uh, one of the things that might immediately stand out to you is that the title has changed. As we've been looking at these letters, most of them have carried the name of the city to which they're addressed. And now we have an individual's name who is being addressed, and that happens in this letter, the one that follows, and the one uh, thereafter, that rather than addressing uh, congregations in an area, we have the Apostle Paul addressing leaders who are in all of those places. And so this leader is Timothy. And uh, one of the things, as you look through this uh, chapter, that I would submit to you, that Paul is preparing this younger mentor in his life to realize is the pervasiveness of sin. The Apostle Paul is being very uh, clear and blunt and forthright with somebody with whom he has a very strong relationship, and he's preparing Timothy for the reality of the pervasiveness of sin. Where he actually starts to warn Timothy is with sin inside the church. And so he says, I've left you there in Ephesus. I want you to stay there, and I want you to stay there because it's already becoming evident that there is uh, coming into the church unhealthy teaching, which is encouraging unhealthy behavior. And so he wants to warn them of that. Then he also talks about the fact that there is brokenness and sinfulness in the world uh, for those who are outside of the church. And then he raises a hand to say, and all of that brokenness and sinfulness was also inside of me. And so there's sinfulness inside the church, there's sinfulness in the world, and the Apostle Paul is saying there's sinfulness inside of each and every one of us. And so if you've uh, heard one aspect of Christian faith described as total uh, depravity, uh, sometimes when people hear that, they might think, oh, if everything is affected by sin, that means everything is as terrible and bad as it could be, which is not uh, what most theologians have meant by that phrase. What they have meant is there's no part of human creation that has not been affected by sin. So it doesn't mean that everything is as bad as it could be, that there's no goodness or grace in this world, but it does mean every part of our creation has been in some way affected by sin. And there is a danger if in our own lives we only see sin in the world. And then we think, oh, well, the church is the safe place. All the bad is out there and all the bad people out there. And so we need to huddle as all the good people and fight against the bad. If that's our main posture, what we miss is all the ways in which, no, there's plenty of bad in the church. And if you're also somebody who's been burned by the church and in your relationship with God, uh, you might have a, a different lens that says there's a lot of bad in the church. And I can tell you about it. I can tell you how I've experienced it. And if you did want to build a file of stories of dysfunction and brokenness in the church, you would never run out of material. And that's a really sad story. And so some people can use the brokenness of the church to then say, I want no part of it. And some people in the church can use the brokenness of the world and say, I want no part of it. And the Apostle Paul is saying, one, it's in both places, and it's also in us. It's in me. Which is not now Paul's way of like just sort of sucking the energy out of the room and saying, this is, you know, have a good night now. It's his way of saying, hold on. Don't just think it's only out there. 
And don't be blind to the fact that it's right in here. Satan can have his way on a Sunday morning just like he can on a Friday night. He's not limited to time and place. And it, what our broken world needs is not a hypocritical church. What our broken world needs is not a hypocritical church. And so our broken world and our broken hearts and broken even Christian community, what we all need is help from outside ourselves. We need a God who can be a source of refuge and renewal and redemption for all of us. And if we overly place uh, or only pay attention to one of the dangers that is out there, sometimes what Satan does is deceive us to the dangers that are from within. And so we ignore and allow all kinds of ungodliness to happen because we're just pointing out other people's ungodliness. And you read through this chapter, and Paul does not mince his words about the people in the church who are starting to cause problem, some to the point at the end of the chapter that he's saying, I've had to now, basically that phrase of turning them over to Satan is his way of saying, I'm, I'm having to exclude them from the fellowship. Like, they're not listening. They're not responding to counsel. And so there has been this intentional separation of them from the community in the hopes that they'll learn that, no, they really do need this community. They really do want it. And maybe they'll repent from their sin in order to come back to it. And he also doesn't mince words about the brokenness that he sees in the world around him. It's pervasive. And if we can acknowledge that, that allows us to then start to look for different types of solutions. It allows us to look for hope in different places. Because if we think all the bad is out there and all of a sudden the church becomes our hope, well, we find ourselves disillusioned when we then realize the church is actually not the perfect answer to the brokenness of this world. And you might have already in your mind walked away from the church because of all of its hypocrisy and its brokenness. But if you've been in the world long enough, you've experienced there's just as much of it out there. And so again, if your hope is now going out into the world and being liberated from all of the, the closed-mindedness that you once had is going to be the source of fulfillment and answer for you, it doesn't take very long before you realize, no, somehow just doing whatever I want and getting whatever I want doesn't actually lead to contentment. It doesn't lead to hopefulness. It doesn't lead to selflessness and sacrifice on behalf of other people. But when we recognize how pervasive sin really is, I submit to you there's three things that from this letter and these next uh, two come. The first one is gospel friendship. When we recognize that how pervasive sin really is, hopefully we realize just how important friendships are. We need friendships meaningful ones. And Paul built a relationship with Timothy, invited him to come uh, on this journey with him at a, during his second missionary journey, and invested him in him as a mentor. And now, though they're in different places, there's still a relationship between them that Paul desires to communicate to him truths that he needs to hear. And we all need that. Actually, in Scripture, uh, it's pretty profound. When you look at some of the strongest uh, expressions of love between human beings throughout Scripture, 
Uh, there's three that I can think of, and none of them are in the context of marriage. You have Ruth pledging her loyalty and her faithfulness to her mother-in-law and saying to her in a time of desperation for Naomi, hey, it feels like everybody else is walking away and you clearly see this world is broken. You've lost your husband, you've lost your sons, you're a stranger in this land. And Ruth comes to her and says, your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. And expresses this loyal covenant friendship that's across generations from a younger person to an older person saying, I'm committing to love you and to be your friend, come what may. And as the story continues, God does amazing and profound things. A little bit later on, uh, it's clear that Jonathan is not going to be the king who replaces his father Saul. That God has appointed a different king in a person named David. And when Jonathan could have been jealous and angry that this younger David, who's not part of the bloodline, is somehow going to be the replacement to him, you, you could imagine there'd be a lot of hostility now, except that the Bible says that their souls were knit together. And so Jonathan makes this commitment in spite of all of the pressure put on him by his own father, Saul, and the surrounding environment to not be David's friend and say, I'm going to be his friend. I'm going to be a loyal person in his life. And I'm going to celebrate that he actually will become the next king of Israel. And that as well is a cross-generation. Uh, growing up, I always thought of David and Jonathan as the same age. But it's very likely that Jonathan was 30 to 40 years older than David. And so from Ruth to Naomi, it was a younger person expressing this loyal covenant with someone older. But with Jonathan and David, it was this older person saying, I can tell my dad is not excited about you. He is not prepared to have this throne, leave this house. But I'm going to be your friend. We see it then here in the New Testament as Paul describes his relationship with Timothy, not only in the letters that he directly writes to him, but then in other letters when he talks to other people about Timothy. He just says, this is somebody that I have so much trust in, of, of his integrity, of his representation of the gospel, of his willingness to stand up to the faith. And there's this relationship that they have like a father to a son when they grew up strangers to one another. And do you know that you and I need that as well? For us to get ahead of and not despair in the pervasiveness of sin in our broken world, we need gospel friendships. We need people in the journey with us across generations from different backgrounds who say, I'm, I'm also trying to figure this out too. <laughs> I'm trying to live this life with integrity. I'm trying to follow after God. I'm not trying to give in to despair. I'm also not trying to make excuses and point out everything bad that's over there and not be aware of anything that's bad in here. And if you ask yourself, who can speak most truthfully to you? Right? Who can call you out? How many people can call you out? And you'll keep talking to them. Most of us have a pretty short list. <laughs> but all of us need that kind of relationship. We need people in our lives who see us and know us and who can speak truth to us. 
if we're to continue to mature and grow in the ways that God desires for us. And so Paul can say to Timothy, I urged you as I was going that you remain in Ephesus. And Paul knows that that's a hard challenge. That, that means Timothy is staying in the very city where Paul got kicked out and had to flee in the cover of darkness. This is not an easy task that Timothy's been entrusted with. And so Paul knows he's going to need encouragement. He's going to need uh, advice from a mentor in his life. And he's going to need friends for the journey. And when I think back on my own life, uh, I could tell the story of my faith journey by the different friends along the way who made a time and investment to be with me. Uh, some who went to different churches than I did, but said, hey, if you want to get together once a month for breakfast at Bob Evans, I'd love to get together. And I was like, oh, yes, I need to get together with someone. I love my parents, but we all have that phase where we don't listen to them, and we need to listen to somebody else who's wise like them, but uh, doesn't uh, have the immediate uh, proximity. And I can think of people that made that time and investment. And another mentor in my life who, when I said, could we get together and and actually get together before church, and we went to the same church, and I said, I need to have in this season of life a time of confession of sin, and would you be able to be somebody that I could just confess sin to? And the person saying, yes, I'd be glad to be honored to do that, and just to get together and pray. And all along, I can just think of different people, no one person sort of filling all of the needs at any one point in time, but just a series of gifts in my life that God has placed meaningful friendships along the way that I believe have not allowed me to become uh, great by any means, but have allowed me to continually be hopeful in spite of the bad news that seems to be constantly around us. Because when you look in the eyes of another and you see they're not freaking out, <laughs> they're trusting in God, it helps you calm down, trust in God, even though you don't have all the answers or know exactly what the future is going to mean. And so flowing right from this gospel uh, friendship is gospel humility. Uh, if we can acknowledge that we need friends and we can acknowledge that we don't have it all together and so we're going to grow over time. And we're going to mature over time. That none of us has to have it all together right now. And that's part of God's grace as he looks upon the pervasiveness of sin in this world. He didn't say, well, I'm going to wait till y'all figure it out. And then I'll send my son. No, he sent his son into the world so that all of us from wherever we're coming can start following after him. And as we're following after him, he'll continue to shape us into his image. And we need to have that grace for one another to recognize that we humbly need uh, accountability in our lives. We need wisdom from other people. And so here, Paul, now uh, a senior saint, and for him to write and talk about the mercy that he's received, how he was, uh, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. That was a gift of grace on Paul's part to remind somebody who he's mentoring, hey, I want you to know that th these are all the areas I struggled. And this is what I needed to be forgiven from. 
And I don't need to look back on that and simply uh, ignore it and not want you to know that stuff about me. It's actually part of the growth of our own relationship if you know some of that stuff and you know the things that God has brought me through and how he's rescued me from so many of the things that I was stuck and lost in. That requires humility on Paul's part to be willing to share those things, to still say of himself that he is the chief of sinners. And so even though Paul identifies that there is sin all around him, Paul is not describing the sinfulness of the leaders in the church or in the world as an excuse to then have nothing to do with those people because he knows that Christ loved him enough to care for him, to still die for him. And that's where I find C.S. Lewis's description of, of humility powerful. He says, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking about ourselves less. Humility, from the perspective of the gospel, is not saying, I'm so bad and terrible, nobody should ever love me. Because for as pervasive sin is, God loved us enough to send his son in the world to die for us. That means he loved us even before he saved us. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't have come to save us. And so if he loves us in that way, it's not a healthy response to even our own sin to say, well, I'm so worthless and nobody should love me and nobody should care about me. No, that comes from the enemy of our souls. It is God who says, I loved you enough to send my son for you. Now I want you, in receiving that, to start loving other people, to start caring about them, to start inviting them into a real relationship with me, just like I invited you. And so over time, the less we think about ourselves and our constant struggles, and the more we think about the world around us and our, uh, our community in front of us, the better off we'll all be, the healthier that we'll be. And when we have that kind of humility, as the letter unfolds, what the Apostle Paul continues to unpack is that we really need gospel integrity. What, what he goes on to describe for Timothy is what to look for in leadership in the church, in conduct in people's lives. Here again, not to put the burden on any of us to say we have to live perfect. And we can't show uh, any of our shadow side to the world. But he also wants to make clear the pervasiveness of sin does not become an excuse for any of us to justify our sin. Our God is a holy God, and he wants us to grow in our holiness. And so he's going to say to Timothy, watch your life and your teaching closely. And when you're looking for other people who might raise their hand and say, I want to lead, one of the qualifications that he says is, how are they viewed by outsiders? How do people who don't agree with them view them? Because you don't have to agree with somebody on a variety of things to still assess about a person over time and say, I believe you're trustworthy. And I hope you believe I'm trustworthy. We might disagree on who we vote for. We might disagree on how we maintain our yards. We might disagree on what sports teams we cheer for. We might disagree on a whole bunch of things. But as you get to know somebody, you either are growing in your sense that this is a trustworthy person or you're growing a little more cautious to say, I'm not sure I can share this with you. I'm not sure it would be good if you knew this. 
And so as Paul is writing Timothy and he's saying, as you're looking throughout the church for leaders, one of the biggest questions you should ask is how are they viewed by outsiders? How are they viewed by people who don't see them at church? Just in case, a church, it's mostly just putting on a good face. Because our integrity affects our witness to the world. And sometimes that integrity is just acknowledging, I made a mistake. I need to make this right. Which means we're not perfect, but it also means we're not just trying to hide or ignore or excuse the sin that comes in our lives. But we need that kind of integrity. And so he says in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about them, that you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then Paul starts to grieve as he thinks of other people who have lost their integrity. And he's saying to Timothy, I don't want that to be true of you. It takes so much time and so much effort to build a reputation. And it takes so little time to destroy it. It takes so little time to destroy a relationship. And how sadly, if part of our misbehavior now starts to affect people's behavior of how they view God. That should cause us to grieve and should cause us to want to do better (laughs) and to do right by the opportunities that we have to shape other people's, not only their perceptions of us, but more importantly, their perceptions of God. Because this is what, uh, and the reason I put gospel at the beginning of all these, because this all flows from Jesus Christ who loved us. And then Paul just sort of, uh, as he's talking about it, um, sort of finds himself falling into worship in verse 17 when he says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He's the one who's gonna give us the strength to do this, to find these kinds of friendships and to live with a a humility that continues to engage the world around us and the community before us and also to seek to grow in all the ways that he wants the gospel to shape us from the inside out and to have the integrity that he desires for each of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news that it offers. That we can read in on a, a, an intimate letter between a friend and colleagues and mentors. And where even as the Apostle Paul wants to be blunt and and straightforward with Timothy. He wants to appropriately warn him that in all of those warnings, there is this recognition that grace and peace and mercy comes from you. That all of us need you. That we need you individually. That as a church, we need to always stand on you and who you are and not on ourselves. And to believe that what our world ultimately needs is you not our best ideas, not our anger, but our willingness to show them what it's like to have unconditional love uh, experienced in this world. And so we pray that you would help us to do that. Uh, Father, if some of us are feeling lonely, longing for, 
friendship, longing for the sort of accountability uh, that we desperately need. Uh, we pray, uh, Stephen, in the immediacy of our departure here, a new conversation, a new intentionality in an existing relationship might open the doors uh, for just a, a healthier way of life that helps us continue to grow into all the ways you would have for us. In Jesus' name.